Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, this is our last week in Matthew chapter 5 after I think this is number 16. Um, We are wrapping up this first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been here for quite some time. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 43 through 48 and probably the culmination of what Jesus is talking about when he's telling his followers what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And something that's really great about this, these, this text here, and as it culminates, as we saw, it sort of began in verse 17, and really in verse 20, when Jesus lays out sort of his thesis for his, his followers, when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And as we look at the, what follows then, there are really just six things here. Anger, lust, divorce, oath, retaliation, and love for enemies, which is really probably what your headings say in your Bible. But we, as we explored these, we saw that there are some significant things that went, ran a lot deeper than just what was contained uh, within those, those headings. We saw anger and, and being liable to uh, judgment as if one murdered someone if you were angry with your brother. And Jesus calls his followers in that instance to urgent reconciliation. And when we looked at lust and looking at a woman or a a man or anyone, any person with lustful intent, Jesus calls us to radical repentance. And when we looked at divorce and remarriage, we understand that we must love and live for another um, as we are inclined to love and live for ourselves. We looked at oaths and we said that speech that honors God, speech that that gives God glory regularly and is honest is what God desires for his kingdom citizens. And then last week as we looked at retaliation and uh, resisting the one that is evil, Jesus tells us that we must, as his people, as kingdom citizens, be ready and prepared to suffer the loss of all things for his sake. And that's what this is about. Jesus is showing us that kingdom citizens are marked by these things. Radical repentance, urgent reconciliation, being willing to suffer the loss of all things, love for others in a way that we're inclined to love ourselves in honesty and consistency in speech. And so this is really a grace to us. I think we maybe read this part of Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 48, in the end where Jesus says, therefore must be perfect as as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we look at that and we say to ourselves, boy, this is just a list of rules and obligations that I need to keep. But that's not what Jesus is communicating. What Jesus is communicating that there's an internal newness that must be taking place, that must take place in someone, um, and that external uh, work, external uh, uh, law-keeping, or the way in which we live our lives comes out of, flows out of internal transformation that has taken place in him. And so we've said throughout the course of our time in here that, that Jesus is building that newness into his followers through his life, his ministry, which will culminate in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so this is, this is more than just keeping a checklist. This is what it means to be a kingdom citizen. We become kingdom citizens when God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son to die for us. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repent, turn from our sin, um, and acknowledge him as creator and sustainer of, of all things and the only way to the Father. 
So what we need to see then is that this passage, this big group of te- this big group of verses, verses 20 through 48, is a grace to us. It's demonstrating to us not only how we should live as kingdom citizens, but it's demonstrating to us the very nature of God and how God exists and what he uh, demands from his followers because of the, the fact that they were created to reflect him. And so as we look at these things, we've seen that that's kind of the, the, the crux of all of this, that we need to be as as creatures created in the image of God, those who are reflecting God with regularity, with consistency. So this morning, as we get to the last of these six statements, we see Jesus tells his followers to love their enemies, and we'll get to that. Well, let's read the text together. Look with me, verse 43 through 48 in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others?" Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so as we've looked at these six statements too, we've seen that Jesus is concerned with right relationship. He's concerned with his followers, with kingdom citizens, having right relationship with fellow image bearers. And so when we look here and we see a a command that seems so far off the rails... You shall, love your, uh, you shall or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We must continue to remember that Jesus is, is always concerned with love for neighbor. He's going to open the scope here. He's going to open it up. And it, we need to reemphasize the importance of this going into this text in particular. John says, the Apostle John says it simply at the end of his life when he wrote his first letter. He says this in John chapter, or 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's simple. These two ideas cannot be divided. We've talked about this ad nauseum. To lack right relationship with others is to misunderstand that God has made a way for us to have right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And so this becomes not just a live and let live mentality. This becomes something far more active. This is why it's so important what Mark said. Forgiving, not just forgetting, but forgiving. There's activity. There's an activity that's built into that act that extends far beyond just a forgetfulness just a forgetfulness. And so as we look at this and as we think about the difficulty that's contained with this in this text, and we've talked about some pretty difficult things in these six, these six passages. I'm just going to submit to you, these are increasing in difficulty and culminating in this one, which is the most difficult. <laughs> Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Again, Jesus, what are you, what are you thinking? Um, we're going to see this in today's passage, that there's more than just indifference towards others and just putting up and tolerating, tolerating them in our day-to-day. And if we're honest with ourselves, people are a constant source of frustration for us, right? People are a constant source of frustration for us. If you think about your day-to-day and you think about the things that you endure on a day-to-day, and when you get frustrated, it usually has to do with people. 
Like I see a lot of you nodding your heads. You know what I'm talking about. Thank you for being honest and nodding your head. Um, but the reason why this is the case is because people are so unpredictable. They do so many unpredictable things, and we think we want them to be consistent. We want them to be just like, you just show up on time and do this and do that, and it's just like fit into my nice little picture of what you should be, then we're happy. People are not controllable. We can't control people, and that generates frustration in us. People have weird habits, right? I mean, or weird according to us. People have weird habits. They do weird things, and we think to ourselves, why are you being so weird? That's just a standard that we've set up. They act in ways that are strange. What, why do we think this way about others? It's very simple, because we're sinful. Because we want to be God. We want to put ourselves on the throne of our lives and be God. And that means that we want to control every in and out, that everything that happens in our day-to-day, and that includes other people. And so all of these six things, all of these six things that we've talked about, cut against the grain of that. Cut against the grain that, that we can control people, that we can order our days exactly the way that we want them. The only way to do that is to officially cut everyone out of our lives, and to do that is a direct violation of what God says that we must do to live lives that exist for others. Okay. I mean, people do stuff constantly that mess us up, right? Our coworkers, our spouse, our kids, the guy who keeps crashing his car into us at Walmart. Like, they're constantly doing things that just, that just drive us nuts and frustrate us to our very core. But Buffalo City Church, if you identify with us, here's, here's a way that we can be different, right? Here's a way that we can, we can live our lives in the community of Jamestown and be a radical witness for Jesus. It's, a, it's to not live like whatever we have to do in the moment is the most important thing in the world. To not live like whatever we have to do in that moment is the most important thing in the world. This is just kind of a simple principle to live by. And yet we find ourselves falling into that time and time again. We just want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. I think Dr. Martin Lane Jones says this very, very well. And I'll read this quote for you. You see it on the screen behind me. Try to recall a single day in your life. Think of the unkind and cruel thoughts that have come into your mind and heart. What produced them? Somebody else? How much of our thinking and acting and behavior is entirely governed by other people? It is one of the things that makes life so wretched. You see a, partic- you see a particular person and your spirit is upset. If you had not seen that person, you have not felt like that. Other people are controlling you. Now, says Christ in effect, you must get out of that condition. Your love must become such that you will no longer be governed and controlled by what other people say. Your life must be governed by a new principle in yourself, a new principle of love. And this starts to sound a little bit like the world, what the world talks about, but we're going to address that as we look at this text this morning because it's radically different. It's radically different. So again, our passage, we've read it, we've looked at it. Each week as we've looked at these six statements, we've, we've observed what Jesus' disciples have heard. So what if Jesus' disciples have heard? Jesus says it to them, right? He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And this text is pretty straightforward. This is not something, like all of the other statements that we've looked at, they, they find their, their grounding in the Old Testament somewhere. This statement actually doesn't. The love your neighbor part absolutely does. But the hate your enemy does not find any grounding in the Old Testament. Um, but this would have been something that would have been regularly communicated to the people by the religious leadership of Jesus' day. They would have re- regularly heard, love your, enemy, or love, your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Um, now, again, this is a simple and logical statement. 
I think it's simple and logical. And you're like, oh, well, I don't hate anybody. But this is a simple and logical statement. And it's pretty straightforward. And again, the religious leadership would have said this because it was logical, because it was simple. And they liked simple, logical things. They liked complexity, right? If we look through at the Gospels and we see the Pharisees and the scribes engaging Jesus, we, would have, we see regularly that they, they, they throw out complex topics and complex things for Jesus and they try to trip Jesus up and try to, trying to, to, to drive him into a corner. Um, they like complexity because it, it keeps them in power. But they also like just the simplicity of a statement like love your neighbor and hate your enemy because it grants them an opportunity to demonstrate to the entire world just how righteous they are. Just how righteous they are. And, and why, would be, why would hating your enemy be considered righteous? I think it would probably would have been because they were uh, an occupied people group. Because they, Rome was there. Rome was there and they were considered their enemy. And so to hate your enemy was, uh, was built into nationalistic identity. It was patriotic to hate those people who were occupying you. And so, and so the religious leadership would have, would have propagated this idea over and over and over again to people, and they would have heard this. The disciples probably would have thought this was a good idea. Love your neighbor. For their neighbor, it would have been a fellow, fellow Jews or their countrymen. Hate, hate your enemy would be someone who is an occupier of and is keeping your people oppressed. And so when they saw this, when the religious leaders would say this, they were just covering their bases. They were saying, care for the people that you absolutely have to care for. Care for those people and everybody else, just whatever. Uh, you you, you uh, fulfilled your obligation to keep the law, but we're going to pass over people uh, for for. Favor in favor of tasks and rules and obligations. So, but then Jesus shows up and says this crazy thing, right? Verse 48, 44, excuse me. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> what? Jesus' words are equally as simple as the religious leaders, but, but would have been logical, and it would have been logical for his disciples, but his disciples, for the most part, would have sort of been a running joke for people in their society, right? His, the disciples weren't educated guys. They were kind of a mess. They were screwed up. They, half the time, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying, and they were following him around. Now, most rabbis would have, would have picked somebody who was, who was an, a real up-and-comer, right? And Jesus' followers were not real up-and-comers, there were blue-collar guys who didn't have much experience, didn't have much of anything going for them at all. And so when he says this, he's flipping this on their, and this command or this, what the religious leadership would have said, he's flipping it on its head. And people, when they heard this, would, and, and if the disciples were to say this and begin to live this way, they're just like, what, about, what, are, what is going on with all these losers who are just following this fanatic around? What are they doing? Why are they treating others in this way? If you look at, again, verses 44 and 45, right? Last week we saw that Jesus tells his followers that if they're slapped on the right cheek, if they're backhanded, that they should turn the other cheek. And we saw last week that if anyone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Another, this is kind of passive. Last week we talked about this. It's kind of passive. It's not passive in the fact that there's actually action required, but it's passive in the fact that you don't have to like it. Right? You don't have to like the fact that, 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 uh, that, you have to, that you're turning the other cheek and that someone is taking your tunic, so you're giving them your cloak. You don't have to like that. 
But in this passage, when we get to verse 43, Jesus moves the needle even farther. He's like, not, not only do you need to do this, not only do you need to relinquish everything and be willing to suffer the loss of all things on my behalf, but those people who are causing you to suffer, you need to love them, and you need to do that actively. So Jesus, again, he moves the needles. Not only are you supposed to resist the one who is evil, or not resist the one who is evil, I'm sorry, not only are you not supposed to resist the one who is evil, but you're supposed to love that person. And again, this is not live and let live. This is not just tolerance. This is active love. Jesus isn't talking about, Jesus isn't talking about love in the way that our culture defines it. He's talking about the love that God showed to us in him. He's saying care deeply about the well-being and the flourishing of those people who oppress you, who cause you to suffer. He's moving the needle beyond that. And the way that God loves us, right? We've talked about this. The way that God loves us is that we're, he's with us, he's for us, and he's unto us. What does that mean? It means that he's present in our lives. So we then must be present in the lives of others, including our enemies. He's for us. He seeks our good regardless of what we've done to him. In the same way, we must seek the good of our enemies. And he desires to see his purposes fulfilled in us. And so we must equally, we are unto someone, we must equally seek the, the, uh, the God's purposes for that person, even our enemies. This is, again, more than toleration. This is more than just living and let living. This is actively acting for the good of our enemies. And as Christians, we're pretty good at tolerating people. I think we're pretty good at that. We're pretty good, pretty good with putting up with people's garbage. But Jesus commands to go far beyond that from just putting up with people. Those people who are actively trying to destroy you, to hurt you. He says to love them. They tear you down, they beat you up, they walk all over you. You're, supposed to, you're not just supposed to tolerate them, you're supposed to love them. You're not supposed to feel something for them, but you're supposed to actively love them. Again, this is rooted in how God loves us, right? His love is active. It's not just general affection, but wholehearted, relentless pursuit. Wholehearted, relentless. His, his love for his enemies drove him to give the life of his son on our behalf. And we would, we, we are unwilling to give up anything, even for people that we like or that we claim to love. Paul says it perfectly in, in Romans 5, 6 through 8. He says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners... We were still enemies of God. Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're not willing to die for a righteous person or maybe even someone that we would call good. But someone who is our complete and opposite, our enemy, Christ died for his enemies. And God loved his enemies and made them his adopted children. We broke his law and acted as if we were God but he changed it all by loving us and sending his son. 
So I think that the, I think the takeaway is clear from these first couple of verses here, right? I think the takeaway is clear. Jesus is telling us to love our enemies and pray for them because it's a group of people that we're least likely to love and pray for. And by saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he's saying, there is no one who's off limits. There's no one who you should not actively be loving in your world as an image bearer, as someone created in God's image. And we just call to see people as God sees people. People were relatively neutron, okay, we'll love them. Loved ones, yeah, we'll love those people. People who hunt us down just to hurt us, yeah, right. Are you kidding? But Jesus says that we must. The quote we read earlier from Lloyd-Jones I think is so important. When he says, you must become such that your love will no longer be governed by a, and controlled by what people say. Your life must be governed by a new principle in yourself, a new principle of love. And that's really, the, that's really the rub here, right? That's the rub. We must see through the garbage that people throw away and see them as God sees them. Image bearers created by God for a purpose to bring him glory. And all that has gone haywire because of sin. But God is actively pursuing that person, even while they're still his enemy, in order to restore them, to restore that wiring, to be able to bring him glory by living a life that honors him. We need to look past the stuff, the external, even what people do to us, right past that and see what God sees. God sees his creature, he sees his image bearer, broken by sin, living for him or herself and not for him. He doesn't see a good person that is just caught up doing bad things. He doesn't see someone struggling to reach inside themselves and just become who they truly are like some Disney movie. What he sees is, he sees a broken person corrupted to the core and he sees that sin has ruined this person to a place that there is no coming back from short of a supernatural intervention. And he provides that for us in Christ. And that's how we must see our enemies. Your enemy needs a new nature in the same way that you needed a new nature. Your enemy needs to experience the kindness of God shown to us in Christ Jesus. Your enemy needs to know the restoration that has been extended to you in Christ. And that's it. That's what this is about. You're the agent of that understanding and everyone you come in contact with, even your enemies, deserves to hear the truth of what Jesus can do for him or her. And so, so what? So what? So we love our, our enemies. What does that do? What does that mean? And Jesus offers some additional thoughts here. Look at verses 46 through 47. Look at those two verses in particular. Actually, go back up to 45. So Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you might be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying by doing this, you reflect God. Sons reflect their fathers. By doing this, you reflect who God is and act according to the identity that God has given you as a peacemaker. Remember back in the Beatitudes like a year ago or something when we were there? Like, it wasn't a year ago, it was just a few weeks. But in, 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 uh, in Matthew 5, verse 9, in the eighth beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Love for enemies points people to the peace that they can have with God through Jesus Christ. You become God's way of making peace with those who are actively opposing him in their sin. What, what, okay, so, and what about this weird sun and rain statement? <laughs> what do you make of that? 
Sun and rain is seen as God's love, and it would have been in a highly agrarian, that's a good word, agrarian culture. Sun and rain are incredibly important. No sun, no rain, you you don't have your crops. We have a lot of technology today that, that moves those things to a place that maybe they're a little less essential, but in the ancient world, these are absolutely essential. There have been several years in a row where nothing would grow at all. And so what he says is that he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the, and the unjust. And God's love in Christ is extended to all people. It's not just extended to one small group of people. It's extended to all types of people. Rain falls on everyone. The sun rises on everyone. And before trusting Jesus, we were all God's enemies, but his love was still showed to us in Christ. Now, there's a necessary response for us to go from enemy to friend. Repentance and faith are essential to the responsibility of everyone to move from enemy to friend. Those who deny God, who remain his enemies, will spend eternity separated from him. But those who receive the free gift will spend eternity in his presence. So, loving those who love you, that's easy business. That's simple, easy business. And again, Jesus isn't interested in what's easy. (laughs) What have we seen in the Sermon on the Mount so far that has been easy? You should probably say nothing. Nothing that he said to us is easy. It's all incredibly difficult stuff. Especially, especially when we get to verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect. I think he, what he's saying here is, so far, everything I've said to you is so important and it's so difficult that you must rely on me entirely for your wholeness, for your completeness, for your maturity, for your perfection. Jesus is interested not in simplicity. Jesus is not interested in what's easy. Jesus is interested in wholeness, external behavior that matches the internal transformation that's taken place in Jesus. And I think the most telling example of that is love your enemies, and I think that's why he finishes with it. So just a few thoughts then as we conclude, and we're going to move to the table this morning, to the Lord's table, Um, and we're going to participate together in the Lord's Supper. But just a few thoughts for you. Um, first, I, th- I think that this passage, in a sense, is meant to show us that we have more enemies than we think we do. <laughs> that sounds really weird. Let me explain. I think that this passage is meant to show us that we have more enemies than we think. Here's what I mean. We tend to categorize people. We tend to take people and put them in categories. We're going to call them, right? Enemy, friend, somewhere in between. Maybe on a spectrum. So, if they're jerks to us, that's an enemy. Right? I think that Jesus deconstructs that for us here. We treat people, here's our problem. We treat people who aren't actively opposed to us, who aren't jerks to us, who haven't actually wronged us. We treat them as enemies. We treat them as someone who we don't really care for or love or like. Scott McKnight writes this as he's writing about this text. Enemy love isn't a magical formula. 
It's not a trick. It's a posture towards every human we meet. We are challenged in this passage to discern who it, who it is whom we treat as enemies. Those who we claim to love, but we don't. Those who never sit at table with us. Those we label and libel. And to convert enemies into neighbors by simply extending love to them. Love is to treat others as we treat ourselves and it is the most rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for them in order to foster Christ likeness that last phrase and it is the rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for them in order to foster Christ likeness if we're not actively loving people in that way then we're treating those people as enemies whether we would maybe categorize them that way or not I think that's part of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's saying, you claim to love this group of people, but you're not willing to lift a finger for them. You're not willing to do anything for them. You're not willing to move them into a category where you are with them, where you are for them, and where you are unto them, seeing God's purposes fulfilled in their lives. We isolate ourselves and we make ourselves unavailable to others, and by doing so, we're calling people our enemies. And notice McKnight, too, in that, in, that, in that quote, he mentions the table. I think this is really important. I think it was kind of why we've tried to build the table as part of who we are as a group of people. If you're new, if you're visiting with us, we, we, when we get together in community groups, we regularly try to eat something or have coffee or do something around, around the table on a regular basis. Maybe not weekly, but on a regular basis. But for us, as people in a rushed over busy world, we, we've changed mealtime. We rush through it, personally, and never eat breakfast. Like, I might grab a banana as I run out the door. Um, I come up for a quick lunch, just grab a sandwich and run into back to my office or wherever my next thing is that I need to go. Uh, and, and then we're, we're relatively intentional with, with mealtime, with supper time as a family. But that's still relatively intentional. It means like four or five times a week we sit down as a family and eat and maybe have someone over. But the table is where relationship is formed. And I think we see this consistently throughout Scripture. We see the table is where relationship is formed. It's an expression of love. If you're invited into someone's home, you're admitting dependence on that person. That person is feeding you. And in our culture, oftentimes when we invite someone over, when we're invited over, the first response is, well, what can I bring? What can I bring? Right? And I think that that is a key and shows us where our hearts are at. That we're not ready and prepared to admit dependence on another person. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't bring anything. That's nice. Good work. But, but I think really, ultimately, it goes into our hearts and shows us our heart. That we as people are not ready and willing to admit full dependence on another person, on another human being. And so the table shows that, that kind of dependence. It shows that kind of dependence. And here's why it does that. Because we see in the book of Revelation that God has invited all of those who are written in the Lamb's book of life to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus returns and when everything is said and done and when we enter into eternity, there's going to be this huge party we're all going to hang out. It's going to be great. We're going to eat a ton of food. And guess what God doesn't want you to do? He doesn't want you to bring the potato salad. He wants you to admit full dependence on him. Your potato salad is going to taste like garbage compared to everything else that's there. He wants you to admit full dependence on him. And when we eat together, we're admitting dependence on each other. 
That's a hard thing to do. That's not an easy thing to do. And yet, by doing so, we are actively moving people from the enemy category into the neighbor category. Second thing that the table does is it just is a place of intimacy. It's a place of intimacy. Of course, it's largely lost in our culture because we just do whatever. We just toss food in our mouth and run out the door to our next activity. But when you gather together with others around the table, it's not a show. It's not meant to be a show. Hospitality, a biblical understanding of hospitality, is not entertaining. You might love to entertain. That's great. You need to begin to exercise hospitality within that also. It's not a show. You're not showing up. The table is where, uh, the table is where uh, inviting people into reality, that, that spills happen, and that stuff gets burnt, and that ingredients get missed. And whatever, your house is not clean. It's a mess. We're inviting others into intimacy by, by not putting a show on for them. Why do you think it was such a big deal to the religious leadership that Jesus sat down and he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners of all types? Because he was entering into a, a phase throughout the course of the day where there was intimacy being expressed. And Jesus was inviting those sinners, those tax collectors, those prostitutes into intimacy with him. That's why this is so important. It's not just because we want another nice little networking opportunity, have people over and say, hey, I love, I, you know, I'd just love to get to know you so I can use you later. Because what we're doing is we're saying we're inviting people into a, a heightened level of intimacy with us. Jesus was doing more with these people than just than sharing some fish and some bread with his homies. He was trying to he was trying to express to them the intimacy he desired to have with them, intimate relationship. Those people were broken, they were beat up, they were at the bottom of the societal ladder, and he went into their space and was intimate with them. And if we're not ready and willing to eat with others in the intimacy and in the messiness of life, then we, and we're not willing to be dependent on one another, then I think, I think what this text is communicating is that we are treating those people as our enemies. It's like, when are we going to move this person from someone who is over here, who hasn't wronged us, who hasn't done anything to us, but we're unwilling to engage? They haven't done anything, but we treat them like they've wronged us in an irreparable way. By never inviting them to intimacy of service and co-submission. I'm fully convinced that actively eating together is incredibly important for this body. I think that, again, this is a way that we can, Buffalo City Church, be identified as a church that loves one another by regularly eating together. I, I really think it's that simple. Keeping this in mind. Keeping these things in mind. Regularly eating together. And I'm not talking about potlucks. I'm talking about inviting people into your home. I'm not opposed to potlucks. I love a good potluck. But I'm talking about inviting people into your home, into dependency, and into intimacy. And you say, I'm busy. I'm a terrible cook. I'm an introvert. My kids behave poorly. Fine, whatever. You're describing all of humanity. Like, and some level, everybody is that. So, yeah, I've had an admonition here, but I think it may be wise not to say it. But the, the most compelling argument for this is just given to us in Scripture. Even though we were his enemies, 
God has invited us to eat with him, to be dependent on him, to experience intimacy with the creator and the sustainer of the the world. God is the perfect host, and we are literally the worst guests. We spit on him. We mocked his, his, his extension, his invitation. We denied him openly. But that didn't stop him. He extended the invitation still, and that invitation is soaked in the blood of Jesus. It cost him a ton. cost him the life of his son. So we're not creating new law here, but if you rarely engage people around the table, I would encourage you to begin to do so. I'll encourage you to begin to invite others into your home to eat with you. Take an opportunity to do that, maybe even this morning. Find someone who, who is next to you and invite them over. By doing this, we're moving enemies to neighbors. And why are we treating others like enemies? Enemies ignore each other. They don't talk to each other. They live like other people's problems and interests aren't a big deal. But neighbors, they don't rush to the door when Sunday morning corporate worship ends. They seek each other out. Neighbors give up their time and energy to love each other by elevating others' interests above their own. So when I say that we have more enemies than we think, I'm not saying that there are people who are actively opposing us regularly. What I am saying is that we're caught up in our own busyness and stuff that we treat almost everyone else like enemies, people who have wronged us. So the question then is, what about people who have actually wronged us? Because we all have those people too. We talked about this last week. It's like it's impossible to be in a room or this size where people are not beat up and broken down by people and being used as a doormat regularly and might have experienced abuse or are experiencing abuse right now by parents or by family members, by bosses, by coworkers, by someone who they claim to be their friend. And here's the world solution. We need to reject the world solution to these problems. We need to reject the world solution. The world says, cut out the negativity. This is not what Jesus says. He does not say cut out the negativity. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is hard. This is a very popular narrative. Millennials, we hear this all the time. Cut out the negativity. Get rid of the people who rob you of your joy. But guess what? If your joy is found in Jesus, how are those people going to rob you of that? How are those people going to take that from you? How are they going to change your citizenship as a as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? How are they going to change your status as a child of God? They're not going to do that. They, they don't have any power to do that. If your joy is found in something else, absolutely they're going to have the power to do it. If your joy is found in Jesus, they will have no power to do that. And there's really no way around this, right? There's no way around. You can't cut out your enemies because you actively ignore what Jesus says here. And you're no longer interested in reflecting God in the relentless pursuit of right relationship with you. Friends, what if we as a church, what if we as a group of people who regularly come together to worship God and to live lives together that exist for one another, what if we changed this? What if we were whole like Jesus says we need to be? What if we cared less about our own interests but desired to see everybody in this body flourish? Can you imagine what that would look like? Can you imagine a group of a hundred or so people who are committed to seeing the flourishing of everyone else all of the time and who are willing to put their own interests on hold to see that take place? 
actually, again, I submit to you that the Jamestown community need this. The, the community doesn't need another church with activities. It doesn't need another church with organized stuff to do. Or we meet on Sunday morning because it's mandated in Scripture and because then, because it is, we believe that it's the best thing for us to do. And we meet in community groups throughout the course of the week which is kind of an incubator for relationship so we can love one another. But whatever happens between those two places, that's where we put, our money, where we put the money where our mouth is. Are we willing to put the money where our mouth is? For many of us, we need to put a lot more money where our mouth is. Because by showing up here, you're saying, I love Jesus. I am committed to following Jesus. And when we're unwilling to do some of these low-level things, like move people out of the enemy column to the friend column, what we're doing is we're saying, no, not here. Not going to do that. What the Jamestown community needs is a group of believers who are always moving people out of that enemy column to the neighbor category. So we can't cut people out. To do so would be incomplete. It would be less than perfect in the way that Jesus calls his followers to be perfect. Why? <clears throat> because when we were opposed to God, because when we were opposed to God, when we robbed him as glo- of glory as creator and sustainer of all things, when we did that, when we were God's enemies, he didn't cut out the negativity. He didn't discard us because we stole what he rightly deserved. In patience, he extended love and grace and mercy and forgiveness to us in Christ. He said, I am with you, I am for you, and I am unto you in a radical way despite the fact that there is nothing in you that regards me as anything. And when the world says silence the haters, cut out the negativity, it assumes that you deserve something. But to love your enemies is to admit that you deserve nothing. You deserve nothing but separation from God. But God moved you out of the enemy column to the friend, to the child column, to the kingdom citizen column through the sacrifice of his son on on your behalf. And so this morning we're going to turn to the table and we're going to acknowledge that together. We're going to acknowledge the fact that God has actively moved us out of the enemy category and into the neighbor category. He's called us his friends. And he did that by a broken body, by shed blood, forgiveness of sins on our behalf. And he's invited us to do what we're going to do here, which is to proclaim that that marriage feast of the Lamb is coming That's coming. We have moved from enemy to friend, and this is proclaiming that truth to the world. This is why we do this. We don't do this because it's just a thing that churches do. We do it because the Bible has commanded us to do it because it's a picture and a reflection of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Broken body, shed or broken body, broken on our behalf so that we might obtain the righteousness of Christ shed blood so that our sin might be removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And so we come to the table this morning. We're going to take the elements. We're going to consider those things. We're going to consider the fact that there was a dramatic shift in who we are because of what Christ has done and that he's invited us to, be, to, to enter into something far greater.
The hospitality that God has shown us is the greatest form of hospitality the world has ever known. Enemies to neighbors. So this morning, I'm going to invite you, the worship team will come up, I'm going to invite you to come up and grab the elements. Um, You can take them here at the table or move back to your seat and and partake of them there, um, just when you're prepared in your own heart. This is something that we do together as believers. If you're visiting with us and you're not sure about what's been said this morning, if you're not sure about what it means to be moved from the enemy column to the friend column, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Anyone up front, we'd love to have a conversation with you just about what that means. Um, If you're not in Christ, I would encourage you to not take the elements. The Bible warns against uh, taking the elements uh, as someone who hasn't trusted Christ. Um, So we want to be cognizant and aware of that. Nobody's going to look at you. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to shame you for not walking up here and taking the elements. It is much more prudent to to refrain if you're not sure where you stand with God. Uh, Children, if there are parents in here who have children in here, I would would encourage you to exercise discretion for your children on that behalf as well. Um, And uh, yeah, so let me pray for us and then we will will move to the, the table this morning.